You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up, a consumer protection specialist will warn us about some of the latest scams and how to avoid falling for them. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a tour of a special cave. Bats are an important part of Wisconsin's wildlife. But over the last decade, a fungal disease called white nose syndrome has devastated bat populations in the state and across the country. In rural Crawford County, a cave that once was a tourist attraction is now protected by the Mississippi Valley Conservancy. It's a safe haven for the bats to hibernate and help scientists develop ways to stop the disease. Most of these bats have settled in for the winter, but before they returned, WPR's Hope Kerwin traveled underground to learn more about this unique cave. So the entrance to the cave is inside this little building. Welcome to Kickapoo Caverns. I'm Sarah Brattenober. I'm Communications Director at Mississippi Valley Conservancy. This doorway is really the only way in for people. But if you look up there, you see a little slot um, along the edge of the ceiling there. That's where the bats come in. Um, some bats fly south in the winter to, hide, to relax and be snowbirds. But um, there are four species of bat. They tend to hibernate here in the Northland. And so they look for places to hibernate where they're not going to freeze to death over the winter. There are a few low spots. So we're going to just take a little duck down here. We are in a completely different space now. We're underground. Oh, this must be 15 feet tall, the ceilings here. All around us, we're seeing kind of a flowing forms of limestone that are being dissolved. It's very damp in here because water is a part of what's going on that created this cave and continues to shape it. Do you see those cages under the stairway? We're making research accessible for the DNR and their partners to actually um, study possible solutions to the white nose syndrome. It's a fungus that's in this cave and it makes their skin itch, it makes them wake up, and in the middle of winter then they start flying around looking for something to eat and they just don't have the calories stored for them to be able to fly around. There is nothing to eat down here in the winter, and most of them have have starved as a result of being awoken. One of the things we do is just help people to be aware of bats and what bats need and why bats are good and what people can do for bats. But, you know, a lot remains to be seen about how the bats will do with this fungus in the environment. Will they develop a resistance to it? Is that why some of the bat populations in Wisconsin are coming back in the last year? Um, we don't know yet. Okay, here we go. We're just about at the end of the cave now. And if we go down to the very end here and look over the edge, 
you will see that is a pool of water right there. A lot of people have never seen anything like this before. And kids who get the chance to come down here are really wowed by it. You know, what a great way to introduce them to some of these ideas about conservation. WPR's Hope Kerwin took us on a tour of the Kickapoo Caverns. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lola and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Want to make sure you catch every Wisconsin Life story? Subscribe to our podcast and find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Maureen McCullum. This is Central Time. Now, you might consider yourself street smart and sensible, but scammers are coming up with new schemes every day. Good news, help is on the way. Our next guest is a consumer protection specialist with advice on how to avoid falling for the latest and not-so-greatest cons out there that you can encounter online, on your phone, and elsewhere. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you ever lost money because of a, a scam or if you had a close call? Have you received suspicious messages, emails, phone calls that you might uh, suspect might be scams? What are your personal rules for avoiding being swindled? What questions do you have? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Michelle Reinen is the Administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection. Michelle, thanks a lot for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Can you give us a sense of the scale of the problem, how big, how much it affects Wisconsin each year? Oh, absolutely. In Wisconsin, the Federal Trade Commission, our national consumer protection partner, helps us keep uh, data reports. And last year, 2022, $88.2 million was lost to fraud in our state. And that's just... Um, out of 44,000 fraud reports, those complaints uh, that consumers filed between the Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection or directly with the Federal Trade Commission. And that median loss is $500, so very significant. And the losses can range quite a bit uh, by the type of scam and the age group that we're seeing impacted for these types of frauds. An example being that we see younger consumers actually falling victim to scams uh, more often as a total, uh, as a nation. And what I mean by that is those in their 20s, 20 to 29, report falling victim and losing money to fraud at 43%, where those in their 70s, 70 to 79, report falling victim and losing money 23% of the time. However, the median losses vary. Those in their 20s are losing $548, but when you hit that um, 70 plus range, you're in the $1,000 to $1,600 median losses. So it, it can, can vary by age and it can vary by scam. According to some data from the Consumer Sentinel Network, there was a big jump in the number of scams reported uh, nationwide between 2019 and 2020. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and ask, did that have something to do with COVID? Certainly, we did see an increase in scams related to COVID. We saw COVID-specific scams um, during the year. And then we also saw a significant increase in online scams and imposter scams. So um, quite a difference there. And 
to explain what an imposter scam is, this is when someone gives you a phone call and pretends to be from the U.S. government. Maybe they're saying they're from Medicare or Social Security. They may even say they're from a big tech company like Microsoft or Google and indicate that you have a problem. And imposter scams can also include a friends and family calling you saying they're in need or a romance scam where a scammer is impersonating a, a, someone that you, you fall for online. Um, and then we also saw those online scams, again, where people are setting up fake marketplaces, and that certainly happened during COVID, um, and they're trying to sell their goods there, and, and really they're not a legitimate retailer. And so you send your money, they have your financial information, and, and can take that money, but they send you no product. Another form of that imposter scam, and I got to say, this is one I've run into more in my life, is via email, where it says, uh, we're from the government or uh, a streaming service that I happen to use or what have you. Problem with your account. Click here to resolve this problem. Uh, I generally don't click there. How can we spot if something like that, that email that claims to be somebody uh, is actually a scam? You just gave a wonderful example of what we call a phishing scheme, um, and that's with the P-H-I-S-H phishing, where they are just sending you an email to entice you to click that link to do a verification or fill out a survey and hand over your personal information. Sometimes they're just asking you to indicate and validate a password because it may look like it's coming from your bank or a shipping company or um, some other financial institution or something that would activate you to act immediately because your finances or something could be at risk or, or paused or delayed there. Like you said, the U.S. government, your Social Security account could be at risk there. So the best way to spot those is to understand that um, the U.S. government isn't going to email you out of the blue, so you don't need to respond to that, and they're not going to ask you to click a link. Um, large companies aren't going to reach out to you by email and tell you that there is a problem with your computer, you know, in a tech support scam situations. And the other large companies, let's say a PayPal and an Amazon and large um national financial institutions aren't going to ask you to do an email verification because they know about these phishing scams. Um, they may say that there is a problem with your account, but they'll ask you to log in the normal way. They won't send you a link to click because that could redirect you to a scammer's imposter website where you are handing over that information. Other clues in the email that you can look for are um, grammatical problems. Uh, you may see that the images are a little fuzzy because they've copied and pasted them in their imposter email there. And you'll also, if you're very careful, could maybe hover over the information um, where the email came from. And you can see that it doesn't actually end in the same extension as the company it's coming from or the email, the, the, the link they want you to click. If you carefully hover over that without clicking it, you also may see that it's not directing you to that same company that the email claims to be coming from. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Justin is with us in Madison. Justin, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. What do you want to tell us about? Well, I had somebody call me uh, from claiming to be from my bank. 
And that's when I realized that our checking account numbers are quite public information to anyone you've ever written a check to. And they called me and they said they were referencing my account ending in, and they gave me the last four digits of the account. They gave me enough information that it sounded very credible, but still there was something that was a, sounded a little bit off. You know, the hairs on the back of my neck were you know standing up. They said, we're going to send you a verification code to your cell phone. Please get me, give me those digits and we'll verify it to you so we can verify these transactions. My cell phone did go off, but something didn't. Nope. From the fraud department, let me call you. Let me call the number on the back of my card and take care of this. They tried to get me to stay on the phone, and that's when I knew something was definitely up. They ended up hanging up on me, and I did not get scammed. Justin, thanks a lot for that call. Justin cut out for a brief moment there, Michelle, but the the moral of the story, I think, was he said, let me find a publicly available uh, phone number for my bank, call, and we'll pick it up from there. A good strategy? A wonderful strategy. Justin used reliable resource information. He had it in his hand on the back of the credit card, and you go to that. If your bank calls you, go get the last statement and call the phone number on that. Open the phone book. You know, don't always trust the Google or the whatever, you know, search engine you use because a scammer could try and get their fake ad to the top. So you need to be cautious of that information, but go to trusted sources of information. And there's always the option of driving yourself to your local bank if it involves your your direct bank. Justin, thanks for that call. We're talking to Michelle Reinen, Administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at Wisconsin's Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. We're talking to her about the most recent scams we're seeing and how to avoid being swindled. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you ever run into a situation you think might be a scam, but you weren't sure? How do you protect yourself from scams and fraud? Do you have questions about how to tell if an interaction is potentially a scam? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. We continue our conversation with Michelle Reinen, Administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at Wisconsin's Department of Ag, Trade and Consumer Protection, looking at newer scams you might not have heard of and how to avoid falling for scams in general. You could join in with your questions, your experiences, maybe your advice at 800-642-1234. Before we go back to our callers, Michelle, are there things out there that are popping up over the last couple few months that uh, people may not have seen, but they may see soon? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing two different uh, tracks, if you will. One is using new technology. We're seeing an increase of artificial intelligence being used in scams. And this could be uh, in the romance scam where they're using that to create uh, photo images. And then we're also seeing it in the phone call friends and family scam, or maybe people have heard of it as the grandparent scam where you get a phone call that appears to be from a loved one. And they're using artificial intelligence to do voice cloning, picking up voice segments from social media. So We certainly want people to be aware of that and have a family plan really in place to be sure that they can um, react to that in the appropriate manner if they are concerned that the call for 
you know, emergency medical assistance or because someone's in jail or having some kind of a problem, that they can react to that safely and soundly without getting taken for a whole bunch of money there. Um, and that may be to set up a family passphrase uh, so you know that the call's legitimate and not something that's just a voice clone using that artificial intelligence. The other thing we're still swe seeing sweep through our state is certainly mailers that really um, entice consumers to take action quickly. Uh, different types. It might be to sell your home. It might be to renew an extended auto warranty or even now um, to renew an extended home warranty. And they ask for you to act immediately because these things are about to expire and you don't want to miss those opportunities. So realize that you probably don't even have a extended warranty in place. And you, again, just want to take your time through these situations and not react to these fake pleas for urgency. Let's go back to our callers. Janet is with us in Burlington. Janet, hi. Hi. So we were scammed by a United Airlines scammer. Um, I did not, I have not booked tickets on an airline since before COVID. And when I Googled United Airlines, I went to the first site, which I shouldn't have. Uh, it was a sponsored site. And uh, believe it or not, these scammers were actually able to book our tickets. They were able to apply a credit. And then when I said we, are, we needed a name change to uh, make sure that our tickets reflected what was on our passport and driver's license, they charged us $100 per person. I offered my American Express card. They said that they couldn't use that. I offered another card. They said they used it. And then they said, uh, call me back tomorrow, and we'll make sure that it went through. Uh, they would not accept my call. I called repeatedly, and finally I had to uh, cancel my American Express and Visa card and uh, do a uh, dispute on the money. So I would say to anybody listening to be careful that you get the authentic uh, website of mm. wherever you're trying to get to. Janet, thanks for the call. Michelle. Yeah, that's a great example of the, those imposter websites, those fake websites that are being set up, or they may even appear, quote, legitimate in that they are going through the routine with you and taking information and, and trying to do the, quote, work that you are asking them to do. But when it turns out at the end of the day, they are just collecting your personal information. So I really love that she took the immediate action to cancel both of those cards and filed disputes in order to get that money back. And it, unfortunately, we do need to be cautious about those sponsored um, websites because it's a way for scammers to try and move their fake site up in front of the legitimate ones. So if you can type in the web address yourself and being very cautious that you don't have any typos in there so you don't end up at one of those uh, fake websites because they often try and select ones where it might be the most common mistype and direct you mm -hmm. to their site. Janet, thanks for that call. We've got another Janet on the line in Slinger. Janet, hi. Hi. Um, just yesterday I was called with one. My son had an accident on the way to work, they said, and he needed $8,200 bond. They sure have all the answers for everything, though. They're really good at what they do. And your he, son is okay, I, I trust, Janet. Yeah, he's just fine. He okay. was at work. It was no problem. But... Um, but I thought, why would I mail the money when I can take it over to the town he's at and bring him home if he doesn't have a vehicle anymore? <clears throat> That's when I stopped. 
Janet, thanks a lot for the call. Michelle, this is something playing on our emotions. Obviously, in that situation, uh, we're not necessarily going to think clearly if we're hearing this bad news. How do we spot that relative had an accident uh, scam? Right. That perfect example of the friends and family scam where they uh, put the medical emergency accident situation. So you need to act right away. So this is an example of having that passphrase uh, for the family. So if it's legitimate that her son could have used that phrase, but realize that they will use all sorts of techniques. They will create background noise to make it sound legitimate they could have an excuse as to why their voice is off if they're not using the voice cloning technology, like I broke my nose in the accident, so my voice is off. And they do study and get whatever information they can if they want to be precise. So again, they can collect information and data from social media. They will play off the cues you give them the longer you stay on the call. Um, and, and they are very talented. So if someone does fall victim to this, please don't feel bad about it because as she said, they are very good. They practice their craft. Um, just take action immediately and, and try and stop the situation by contacting your bank. If you've wired money, go back to the company you use to wire money to try and stop the transaction, but do what you can immediately to report it and try and stop the harm. Janet, thanks for that call. And Michelle, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Michelle Reinen is the administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at Wisconsin's Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection. We talked to her about how to protect ourselves against the latest scams out there. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, unionized American auto workers went through their biggest strike in decades, and now there are agreements in the works with the big three automakers. Dig into the strike, the outcome, and what it all means for the industry, for workers, and for consumers. Also, Americans take a lot of non-prescription medications without always thinking about safety or potential drug interactions. Find out what you need to know about over-the-counter medications. That and more. It's all coming up tomorrow here on Central Time on the Ideas Network. Coming up after the news, the Internet makes it easier for more of us to learn about history, but that information might not always be accurate. We'll talk to a public historian about his new book, looking at the ways social media and the web change how we learn about the past. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up, a historian joins the show for a look at the many ways that the Internet and social media are changing our understanding of the past. First, the fourth annual Black Arts Matter Festival kicks off today in Madison. The fest brings together music, visual art, and spoken word poetry to celebrate black creativity. Events run through this Sunday, November 12th. Shasperay Irvin is co-founder and artistic director of the Black Arts Matter Festival. She's also a performance artist and ranked fourth at the 2022 Women of the World Poetry Slam. I talked to her earlier today. Now, this is, I understand, the fourth year for the Black Arts Matter Festival. You founded it back in 2019. Can you talk about the need that you saw and the vision for what the festival could be? Yes, of course. So in 2019, I was in my undergraduate pro program in the theater department at UW-Madison, I noticed that there was a 
love and for the arts and humanities in Madison um, across the board, but for the art forms that I've participated in, Poetry Slam, for example, or Black Arts, I noticed that there was just kind of a lack of that in in town, in Madison, on campus. So I wanted to provide a space because I was always traveling out of town for festivals um, to get that art. Now you started in 2019, then we had COVID, but you still got it going in 2023. How did you keep the festival rolling through some uh, difficult times? Yeah, uh, due to the partnership with the Wisconsin Union Theater, they are producing the festival and have been. We actually had a completely virtual festival in 2020, so that was a really interesting year where we got to play with hosting a virtual festival and returned um, in 2022 and now 2023. So due to their partnership and the fundraising and grants they've been able to secure, we've been able to keep things growing and going. You mentioned uh, poetry slams, a lot of spoken word poetry. For people who have never uh, been to one of these, what could they expect? Yeah, so November 10th, we are having a poetry slam. That is something that has been a part of every festival. A poetry slam is a poetry competition where poets um, compete with their original works. They do original poetry from the stage, spoken word, and they're judged by uh, randomly selected or pre-selected judges, and they compete for prizes. This year, they're competing for $3,000, $2,000, $1,000. And these are poets from all over, the top-ranked poets from all over the country coming into Madison. What other things can people visit uh, over the course of the festival? Yeah, so tonight we actually have an opening reception, a celebration of four years of festivals with DJ Femme Noir, who's a local DJ um, legend in town, which will have free food, so come to that. Um, (laughs) We have the Poetry Slam. We'll also have headlining Tank and the Bangas performing, Grammy-nominated artists. Super excited for that. Then we will have, um, we're engaging youth, actually, for the first time. So at My Arts on, on East Mifflin Street, we're actually going to be having a youth talent competition where there's going to be elementary, middle school, and high school categories for competition, as well as a vendor and art market in My Arts on the 12th. And uh, if people want to find out, find out more, if they're in Madison or want to visit, uh, where can they go for info? Yeah, so you can always visit um, the Black Arts Matters Festival dot org or um, head to the Wisconsin Union Theater website for more information about the full events. Either is fine. Shasperay, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Shasperay Irvin is founder and artistic director of the Black Arts Matter Festival based in Madison. It starts today and runs through Sunday. Now, thanks to the Internet and social media, there are lots and lots of ways to access lessons about history. From Wikipedia to TikTok, there's plenty of content about history that tries to grab our eye. But whether it's complete and accurate, that's another question. Our next guest calls it e-history, and his latest book digs into how the Internet is changing our relationship with the past. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you like to read up or listen up on history online? Have you ever come across an article or an image about history, wondered if it was the real deal? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. 
Jason Steinhauer is a public historian and author. His latest book is called History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. He was a keynote speaker at the Local History and Historical Preservation Conference in La Crosse last month. Jason, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you for having me. As you explain in your book, e-history covers a lot of ground, a lot of Internet content. Can you give us a sense of the scope and the kinds of things we're talking about? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a huge universe of content. On a platform like TikTok, for example, at this time last year, there were 58 billion posts with the hashtag history, 58 billion posts with the hashtag history. That was a year ago, so now it's well over 100 billion on Instagram. It's somewhere in the range of 40 to 50 million. Again, that was last year, so now it's probably well over 100 million. And that's just with the hashtag history. It doesn't even include other content that alludes to history or tries to teach you something about the past or claims to be teaching you something about the past. So it's a huge universe of content. We are constantly seeing images about the past and information about history in our newsfeed every single day at any given time. One concern you have is that a lot of times you talk to people who describe themselves as fans of uh, some of the different kinds of content, who when they sit back and think and talk about it, think, yeah, I enjoy it, but I don't really feel like I'm learning that much from it. What's going on there? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. You know, as part of this project and part of the work I do, I interviewed a lot of people of all different ages and backgrounds. And, you know, they'll confess that they might spend an hour or two on their phone scrolling through social media, seeing lots of e-history content as well as other types of content. And then they look up and realize that they don't remember a single thing that they looked at. Right. It's like we have all this information around us, but how much of it is actually getting through? How much of it is actually stuff that we are remembering, that we are actively learning, uh, which is why I say that even though we're encountering a lot of e-history content online, that doesn't actually mean that we're learning anything about history. And a lot of this just goes back to how social media platforms are designed. Right. They're designed a lot like slot machines. If you go to a casino and you see people in front of a slot machine, what they're getting addicted to is actually just the process of pulling the lever and having a different result show up each time. And you'll find that people can sit in front of a slot machine for hours at a time and not really even know what they're doing, just continually pulling the lever. And social media has that same effect. You end up getting stuck on your phone scrolling passively without even really realizing what you're doing. And then when you look up, you don't even know what you encountered. So you're getting a pro addicted to the process of scrolling. You're not really absorbing any of the information. Another concern you raise is about uh, the source of the material. Now, someone who's an expert uh, who spent their whole life studying, say, I don't know, ancient Roman history could post something on TikTok. I could post something on TikTok about the same topic. I promise you they know a lot more than I do. That doesn't mean their post is going to get any more attention than mine does. Can you talk about this idea of democratizing uh, the Internet when it comes to uh, sharing information about history? Yeah, so what I learned researching the book was the visibility of a piece of e-history in our news feeds has no correlation to the accuracy of that information. In other words, you could put up a piece of e-history about Napoleon or Julius Caesar or the Holocaust, and it could be incredibly accurate, scholarly, rigorously researched, et cetera, and it might achieve no visibility online. And then to your point, someone who knows nothing about those topics could put up a piece of e-history about uh, any one of those things and achieve great visibility and influence online. 
It turns out that accuracy has no bearing on how far and wide a piece of information will travel. What seems to be the real determinant is how well the content aligns with the values that are embedded in the social media platforms themselves. In other words, there are certain assumptions that have gone into the creation of these platforms, certain assumptions that have gone into the design of the algorithms. And the more that a piece of e-history content leverages those assumptions, leverages those algorithms, and leans into the values of social media itself, the more visibility the content seems to achieve. And that has profound implications for the types of information that we see in our phones and in our news feeds each day, because we're not necessarily seeing the most accurate. We're seeing the information that best aligns with the values of the social web itself. There's another step that, that seems in some ways to be the most dangerous thing you call attention to, uh, that people with certain uh, political perspectives can create content online again, with a view not so much for accurate history as for history that aligns with their values and hopefully sways other people toward those values, or even more extreme, uh, mis disinformation uh, actors wanting to uh, spread false information about uh, the history, especially behind a current conflict. How, how ripe is that for abuse? Well, listen, we are constantly being bombarded by information each day that attempts to persuade us to one thing or another. And sometimes that's advertising and marketing content, and sometimes it's political campaigns, and other times it's disinformation campaigns that are leveraging history. And uh, you know, when we think about our own context in the United States, uh, certainly over the past few years, uh, we have seen evidence of this. We've also seen evidence of it in Europe, in the Middle East, in China, and other places. Uh, history is a very powerful discipline, right? Information about the past really does shape and inform how we view the present and the future. And so there are all sorts of nefarious actors out there who are taking elements of the past and tweaking it or distorting it or presenting it in a way with an ultimate purpose of either persuading us to believe one thing or another, to doubting certain things that we think that we know, or purposely trying to cause divisions in society to get us to attack one another. And uh, history, e-history online turns out plays a critical role in that. And there are lots of examples, both in the book, as well as on my Substack newsletter, where I go into how that plays out and what types of campaigns we're talking about. Talking to historian Jason Steinhauer, author of the book History Disrupted, about how social media and the Internet changed the way we understand the past, not always for the better. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a general interest in history? Where do you go for information about it? Do you look for books? Do you go to social media, uh, YouTube for videos, for example, or a podcast? Do you worry about its accuracy? If so, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Verrett. We're picking up our conversation with Jason Steinhauer, historian and author of the book, History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you seek out information about history, where do you go for it? Are there 
things online that you think have really uh, been rewarding, interesting, and informative. Join in at 800-642-1234. Before we go to our callers, Jason, wanted to ask you about what you would hope to see from historians and uh, academia in supporting those historians when it comes to uh, reaching out with better researched, better contextualized history. Principally, I'd like to see more funding. To be honest, uh, the history profession is increasingly under funding pressures. I actually saw that very starkly when I was uh, in Wisconsin at the conference a couple weeks ago as the keynote speaker. I went to a couple of panels and heard from local historical societies across the state uh, just how much of a struggle it is to continue to raise money, to bring in funds, to bring in visitors, to recruit donors, to support the type of work that history organizations and history professionals want to do when it comes to public engagement and reaching out on the web and on social media and putting accurate history into the public domain. All of that takes a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount of resources, and it's oftentimes resources uh, and staff and training that institutions and historians don't have. And so part of what we've been trying to do through my History Communication Institute, which is the organization that I started a couple of years ago, is to bring more funding into this space to help publicly engaged scholars do this type of work. Let's bring on a caller now at 800-642-1234. John is with us in Darlington. John, hi. Hi, thanks for uh, taking my call. Say, I will uh, admit that I'm a huge fan of history content on the internet, especially YouTube. Uh, and I think it's really wise to caution people about, uh, you know, quality is not always there. You know, you have to be uh, a, a real critical thinker when you're uh, consuming this content. I do just have a couple follow-up questions, though, that your expert, uh, follow-up questions about uh, comments that your expert made. One was, uh, the comment was, that there's no correlation between quality and accuracy uh, compared to um, uh, popularity. Mm -hmm. And my follow-up question is, is that, um, was there like a regression study on that or is that an opinion? And my second follow-up question, then I'll take your comments off the air. My second follow-up question is, uh, you said that what does control popularity of content is the values of the platform. And uh, certainly it's based on algorithms, but I'm not sure that's true because I happen to know that the popularity of YouTube content, for example, uh, tends to mostly have to do with how many people liked that content, how many people commented on that content. And that is, I, I consider to be a, a pretty big indicator of uh, perhaps quality, but also the entertainment value of the content and not necessarily directly just uh, values or whims of the platform creator. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on those follow-up questions. John, thanks for the call. Jason, do you want to flesh that out a little? Yeah, so I'd say that to the first question, so that's research that was done over five and a half years. Uh, that's all detailed in the book. Uh, don't have time today to go through all of it, but if you're interested in it, I would encourage you to pick up the book. It's called History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past, and it's a uh, peer-reviewed, highly footnoted, uh, so you can see where all that information comes from and decide for yourself what you think about it. The second question is sort of related to the first in some way. I would say this, right? The platforms, as I mentioned, they have certain assumptions built into them. And one of the assumptions that built into them is that the more attention that people are giving something, 
the more visibility it should be given in the feed. In other, so this kind of reinforces what the caller was saying, right? That's an assumption that is built into many platforms, including YouTube, that visibility is oftentimes linked with how many people in a crowd or commenting are looking at something. That has no correlation with accuracy, right? Because lots of people can be looking at something and commenting on something, and it could be wildly inaccurate. Um, and so I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to get people to think about critically, is just because something is getting a lot of views and getting a lot of comments, and as a result, getting a lot of visibility in your feed and showing up on your phone when you go to YouTube and conducting searches, that doesn't mean that it's accurate. That doesn't mean that it's based on the most recent scholarship. That doesn't mean that it aligns with what professional historians think about a particular subject. And YouTube doesn't take what professional historians think about a particular subject into consideration when it's creating and ranking its algorithm. So that's what I mean by like the assumptions that go into the algorithm are what dictates visibility. And that that has profound consequences for what we see and what we don't see. John, thanks for that call. Talking to Jason Steinhauer, historian, author of the book, History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. Sarah joins us now in Libertyville, Illinois. Sarah, hi. Hi there. Well, you know, it's uh, I have had this pet peeve in the last few weeks because I'm a mad, I'm a like Beatle maniac from back in the 70s. I'm not quite old enough to be one in the 60s. <laughs> but um, so I, I've been really into reading about them and, and sharing stories about them on uh, the social media site I'm on. And I've just found that the younger fans and even some of the older ones, they just believe a lot of things that are just completely not true because it's just shared on the Internet so often. You get this, these you know, these supposed facts that people share, and they're just not true. And there's a couple sites online that are very authentic. I mean, the really well-researched. And if you go to there, you get the right information. But not that many people will go to these sites. They just believe what they read. And I, you know, I'm, I've been a little bit upset lately because I feel like in 50 years, no one's going to really know. There'll be all this, like, just made-up stuff or the mythology about the Beatles is going to be what they believe, and it's just not true. Sarah, thanks for the call. Jason, you write in the book, it's not just the Beatles. We end up with sometimes a popular consensus on history that, as Sarah suggests, they have nothing to do with the actual history. Yeah, and Wikipedia is a great example of this, and I appreciate Sarah's comment, um, because, or the caller's comment, because that's exactly what I was trying to illustrate with the last point, right? If a lot of people believe something, even if it's not accurate, even if it's not grounded in what actually happened, it can take on a life of its own very quickly online. And on Wikipedia, for example, you know, I have examples of this in my book. Uh, if enough editors and contributors get behind some sort of myth or popular consensus that isn't actually true or isn't actually accurate or isn't grounded in what actually happened, it can sort of take on a life of its own and show up in the entry. And then once it's on Wikipedia, because so many people go to Wikipedia for information, it can then spread very quickly. So for example, YouTubers who make history videos, they're not doing original research most of the time. What they're doing is going to Wikipedia, taking the information that's there, and then repurposing it into a video. So if a consensus forms on Wikipedia that something is true that isn't, it can then be picked up by YouTubers, by TikTokers, by Amazon Alexa, and spread very quickly across the web. And sooner rather than later, you have the phenomenon that was just described that there's a whole world out there that believes X when the truth was actually Y.
Thanks for that call. Jason, in our just last half a minute, if somebody's out there thinking, gosh, I, I'm interested in history, I'm not a professional, well, where the heck should I start? Do you have some some uh, starting points for them? Well, I would say first one would be my Substack newsletter, jasonsteinhauer.substack.com, because what I try to do is actually not recommend particular sites or platforms one over the other because there's so much content out there, but rather give people tools through which to think about these issues. And a lot of those tools and a lot of those case studies are on my Substack newsletter. So if you go there, you'll start to see some different ideas and insights into how we deal with this massive e-history universe that we have created. And hopefully some of those can then be useful as people navigate across the web. Jason, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That's Jason Steinhauer, public historian and author. He talked to us about his book, History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past, looking at uh, how we treat history on the Internet. We'll get a link up to that newsletter he just mentioned over at WPR.org slash Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network.